morning our scripture reading comes from John chapter 6, and we're reading verses 16 to 24. Over these last few Sundays together in this month of January and now into February, we have been steadily working our way through the Gospel of John. And today we come to a very dramatic passage of Scripture that is reasonably well known to us, and it's entitled, Jesus Walks on the Water. Last Sunday morning I mentioned to you that in those early weeks of January, we had produced a bookmark to go along with our study series. And on one side it has the Sundays through January, February, March and into April, along with the passages of Scripture we'll be looking at. And we of course, intentionally published that, made it available, asked you if you don't have a Bible reading plan to take it home and follow through each day as you read your own Bible and your private devotions. And on the back were five or six questions being asked, which would help us focus our faith in the new year. And having mentioned it over the last couple of weeks, we ran out and Sunday morning after the 8.30 service, Folks were looking for them and couldn't find any. Well, this morning, they're immediately out the door in the literature racks. I double-checked. And they're also on the table opposite the literature racks. So if you haven't had a chance to pick one up yet, please do. I think you'll find that a helpful resource as we get further and further into John's Gospel. And so the Apostle John, looking back on the ministry of Jesus, was an eyewitness to many of the events found in his gospel, of course. And so he writes, When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they had got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing. And the waters grew rough. And when they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. And they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. And then they were willing to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. I'm sure I've told you this story before, but it is one of those memories I have from my teenage years that keep coming back to the front of my mind. Now, I remember quite distinctly being 14 years old, maybe 15, and going into my English class, my English teacher gave to the entire class two of Shakespeare's plays to read. I was entirely unfamiliar with Julius Caesar. I had no idea who Macbeth was or why a play was written about him. And over those first four or five weeks of English class, I did not come to an appreciation of William Shakespeare. I could not get my head round the Elizabethan English. I 
couldn't come to terms with the odd format of writing plays. I'd never studied a play before. And Macbeth was the first one we studied. And growing up in Motherwell, just outside Glasgow in central Scotland, it's a steel town. For the life of me, I couldn't see why my teacher had given us a play to read about a 12th century Scottish king. I had nothing in common with Macbeth. And quite honestly, the whole experience turned me off. But after about four or four and a half weeks, I began to discover that I was changing And I began to discover that the more I actually engaged with the play, the more familiar I became with Duncan and Macbeth and Banquo and the Three Witches and all that was taking place, the more I studied the plot line and its development and the characters, what I discovered was this, that Macbeth was not seeking to teach me anything about 12th century Scotland, but he was seeking to teach me about myself. As Macbeth focuses on murder and mayhem and a lust for power and greed and selfish ambition. And I remember quite distinctly our teacher asking us this question. If you could take the life of the most powerful man in the nation and no one would know and you would become king and sovereign over that nation, is that something you would consider doing? And remember, no one would know. And my 14-year-old imagination began to enlarge and I thought, Really? You could become king? No one would ever find out? And what was happening was I was being drawn further and further into the play to understand what was happening. And on Sunday morning, when we come to the scriptures and we open them together, we're not simply looking at the historicity of the first century We're not simply looking at the culture and the geographical locations of ancient antiquity. We're not looking out at the layout of the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee. But in fact, we prayerfully come to the Scriptures to say, Father, draw us into your word Teach us about ourselves. Enable us to get to know you at that next level in our discipleship as we seek to know you. That's what's going on on Sunday morning. That's what's taking place. And as we come to what is a pretty dramatic passage of Scripture... My prayer this morning is that we will grasp the immensity of what is unfolding before us. And as we come to the passage, John immediately draws us in by saying, When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. And immediately you think, when evening came? Why does John put that in there? Why doesn't he simply write 
His disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat. Why is he telling us it's evening? He's indicating to us that something else has happened in the course of that day. And if you know this passage well, you will know that John chapter 6 is a remarkable chapter of Scripture. Because it records the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000 is the only other miracle recorded in all four Gospels. The resurrection is recorded in all four, but so is the feeding of the 5,000. And why? Why is that so important? Why is that raised up, seemingly, over the other miracles? In other words, what is it telling us? Notice how chapter 6 begins. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is also known as the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. And so as you get to chapter 6, the reputation of Jesus is building and building and building. He has a much higher profile than he did at the beginning of chapter 2. And people are coming in their hundreds, and in this case, thousands to hear him. They wanted not only to hear him, they wanted to see these miracles performed. They had heard that this was happening, but they wanted to experience it for themselves. And so chapter 6 begins with the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And as you get further into the chapter, we discover that after the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples went down to the lake and took the boat across to the other side of Capernaum. And notice what happens. By now, it was dark, and Jesus had not joined them. And a strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. And when they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. Let's pause for a second and seek to grasp the enormity of what is taking place here. Sea of Galilee is 13 miles long. It's shaped a little like a harp. At its widest point, it's about seven and a half or eight miles. And John goes to great great details to tell us it was about three or three and a half miles into their crossing when the wind got up and the waves became rough. And if you have ever been in a fishing boat in the middle of a lake and it gets stormy, you'll understand what's going on. And the boat is going up and down and up and down. And remember, it's dark. There's no radar, no compass. They're navigating by the stars. They certainly knew the Sea of Galilee well. They were fishermen. They knew it like the back of their own hand. But it's not turning out the way they initially imagined, crossing the Sea of Galilee for the disciples of Jesus, for whom many of them had been fishermen, was no more difficult than you running to Publix or to run errands or go to work in the beginning of your day. It was a fairly straightforward journey. And then it begins to change. Now I suspect that if you're anything like me, I've been in small Bible study groups over the years when someone has turned to this passage 
And often they will read it, the group will study it together, and often as they apply it, this is what is said. This passage teaches us that in the midst of dark and difficult and stormy days, when you trust in him, he brings comfort and certainty amidst our concerns. And just as he calmed the storm in the Sea of Galilee, he calms the storm in our own soul as well. Now that is indeed a biblical principle. I have no hesitations or reservations with it, except this. This passage doesn't teach that principle. It's a biblical principle, but you don't get it from this passage. Because notice what happens. Verse 18, a strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. And when they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat and walking on the water. And they were terrified. Do you see the difference? And they were terrified. It was the appearance of Jesus walking on the water that caused the disciples to be terrified. Now remember the principle that's often taught from this passage. Just as Jesus calmed the storm in the Sea of Galilee, he calms the storm in your soul too. Now that is a biblical principle. The difficulty is, it's not taught in this passage. It's taught elsewhere, but not in this passage. Because this passage teaches us this. That here were seasoned fishermen veterans of the Sea of Galilee, they knew it and they knew it well. They had crossed it at night before. But when this storm comes up and nature unleashes unbridled power in front of them, then they see Jesus walking towards them in the boat. And they're terrified. Why are they terrified? It's very rarely in Scripture, when, especially in the New Testament, when Jesus approaches a group or they realize he's standing close by or sometimes in their midst. It's exceedingly rare that the response of the people who are there is that they're terrified. But that's what's happening here. And why is it happening? It's happening for this reason. Earlier in the day, when Jesus took five loaves and two small fish and he blessed it and broke it and gave it out to the multitudes, the disciples had witnessed a miracle. In fact, at the beginning of chapter 6, it says people were coming to see the miracles and the signs So miracles were not new to the disciples in that sense. Were they rare? Absolutely, but not new. Had several occurred in the course of John's Gospel? Absolutely. So what is going on here? Why are they terrified? A significant change has taken place. The disciples are no longer spectators. They're no longer bystanders. They're no longer watching in awe 
of a miracle taking place. But in fact, they are now at the very center of it. And almost as if there is a flash of lightning and they see Jesus, they understand at a whole new level who this actually is. And here is very God of very God who controls nature in all of its unbridled power and passion. And he controls it and he walks on the water in the Sea of Galilee and they see God in all of his majesty and wonder and glory and this man in the middle of a storm, this flash of revelation, washes over them. And they realize that they are utterly and absolutely unworthy to be there with him. And the sovereign power of God washes over them in a new way. And they were terrified. There are moments in Scripture when God reveals himself to individuals at a whole new level and it is seriously uncomfortable. It leaves them unnerved. It leaves them unsettled because they realize in whose company they are. And that's what's going on here. Jesus, of course, with great empathy, says to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. And notice what happens. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. And here is the second, in fact, it's the third miracle that day. The first was the feeding of the 5,000. The second is Jesus in control of nature. And thirdly, in a miraculous, spectacular manner, he moves the boat to the shore. When they're only halfway, in fact, less than halfway. William Cowper, in his famous hymn, writes these words. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. And that's exactly what we're seeing right here. Exactly what we're seeing. And notice the words he uses. He says, it is I. Don't be afraid. Over the last few weeks, we have been mentioning a little about the distinctive nature of John's gospel. And if you've been with us, you would have heard me say several times that in John's gospel, there are no wise men, there are no shepherds, there is no star over Bethlehem, there's no inn, there's no innkeeper, there's no sermon on the mount, there's no transfiguration. John very distinctly includes significant passages where Jesus interacts with real people in real circumstances and you see the transformation that his presence and his love brings. 
But there's another distinction of John's Gospel we haven't touched on yet, and we'll touch on it in significant detail next Sunday morning. And it is that there are seven sayings found only in John's Gospel. And New Testament scholars refer to them as the I am sayings. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for my sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. And you find them only in John's gospel. And the language in the I am sayings is almost identical to the language here. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, I am with you. Don't be afraid. It's the same language that is used when Moses is in front of the burning bush and he comes up with one excuse after another after another as to why he doesn't want to go to Egypt and what will he say when Pharaoh pushes back and God says to him, tell him, I am sent to you. And once again, we see God revealing himself at a whole new level to his disciples. It's almost as if in reading John's gospel, you've moved to the next stage in a growing faith as he draws you deeper and deeper into this passage. So having said all of that this morning, how do we begin to wrap all of this up? Three lessons I think we can draw this morning. Number one, if you are serious about growing in your faith, if you have prayed this year, Father, in this new year, take me please to the next level in my walk with you. Please do not be surprised if he puts you in difficult tight corners where he strips away your dependency on other things or other people and you discover that the time you're spending with him is moving you to that intense place of growth in your faith. Is it uncomfortable? Is it unsettling? Absolutely. And it should be. Number one. Number two, when the circumstances of your life move you to a place that feels a little dark, chaotic, you're uncertain, please remember that he does bring order and chaos out of darkness and uncertainty. It is I. I am with you and you can absolutely trust him. What did we learn last Sunday morning in John chapter 4? He is sufficient for our every need. And finally, if you've been going through a dry spell in your faith, and your relationship with him is not the way it once was, and you found yourself stumbling and falling, and it feels that you're in an arid place, Please remember this. 1986. Two brothers who lived at the side of the Sea of Galilee were fishermen, had their own fishing vessel, 
walking the dog one morning. Northern Galilee had gone through a period of drought for about two or two and a half months. And the water at the Sea of Galilee was becoming less and less, and you could see it reducing. And one morning they had a storm overnight, not a huge amount of rain, grateful as they were for it. But that morning they saw a piece of timber sticking up out of the sand close to some rocks. And they walked their dog there every morning and they thought, that's a little unusual. And as they went over and they began to push back the sand, they discovered a fishing boat from the Sea of Galilee that dated back to the first century, the year 60 A.D., The Israeli antiquities authorities, of course, came on site. They spent the best part of a year preserving it. And if you go to the spot today, you can see it. It's now in a museum close to where you get boats to tour the Sea of Galilee. And it's a remarkable piece of antiquity. Absolutely remarkable. But please know this. If there had been no drought... No time in an arid, deserted place and no storm the night before, it would never have been found. When he takes us through difficult and hard days, he often works in and through those circumstances to take us to the next level. And I wonder if we dare say, Father, Allow us to see you in all of your sovereign love and power at work in our lives, in our church, and in our city. And let me give you a warning. Please don't pray such a prayer if you're not willing to live with the consequences of God refining you and shaping you and fashioning you and taking you to the next level in your walk with him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture this morning. Thank you for the many lessons we have learned. But Father, most of all, enable us, please, to leave this place and allow our hearts to cry out that we would see you active in our lives. Take us to a deep and fuller and richer experience of you. And Father, enable us to follow you, to be your disciples. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.